and we are headed to Revelation 19. While those good folk are stepping out, we're headed to Revelation 19 as we continue on. What we're doing just to get our brains going early in the morning on such a beautiful fall morning is just asking a variety of different questions. So, name an animal sold in a pet store that you don't want to put in your bed with you. Snake. Gerbil. <laughs> a rat. Goldfish. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that one. Here's what they said. Yeah, mice, rats, fish, hamsters, spider tarantula, dog, lizard, guam, and steak was number one. Name someone you'd hire to entertain at a kid's party, but you wouldn't hire them to do a funeral. <laughs> a clown is there. Or something you might bring to have at the kid's party you might rent. What's that? A magician? Somebody said clown, magician. Bounce house. Just put that casket in there and bounce it up and down, yeah. Here they said bounce houses, balloon maker, horse rides, DJ band, juggler, magician, and number one was, yeah. Okay, name something people do if their waiter or waitress doesn't come to their table for a while. They leave? <laughs> Don't what? Don't leave a tip? It's going to be there. What's that? Wave them down. Anything else? Find the manager. Here's what they said. Give them mean looks. <laughs> Snap your fingers at them. Okay? Call out. Hey, you. <laughs> Leave no tip. Raise your hand and wave at them, and they wave back. You know, that's <laughs> uh, Dine and dash, and then complain to others. What do people do when the pastor says, let's pray? Pray? What did you say? I'm going to watch you this morning. <laughs> what else? <laughs> here's, what, here's what I put there. They nod off. Jim and three and two others, they nod off. Okay. They whisper to those around them. They pack up their Bibles and papers. You hear that, don't you? Yeah, okay. Uh, they slip out. They check their phones. But number one... They pray. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, this is going to be a little bit more challenging. What are some of the signs that were in the last days? There's few verses in the scripture that says, in the last days, da-da-da-da-da-da. What are some of those specific signs that we are in the final days? Okay, that's tribulation. Okay. What's that? Okay, again, that's tribulation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The last days, even before the tribulation gets gone. Okay, that's tribulation. Okay, what'd you say? Embracing sin. Go ahead. That's okay. Second Timothy says, "In the latter days, people shall wax worse and worse." Okay, that's one of them. If you think of any other signs that were in those final period. Okay, it's going to be greater deception. What else? What would you say? Israel in their own land. Has to be in their own land before the tribulation starts. How do we know that? For Antichrist to sign a treaty, he's got to sign a treaty with an entity, a treaty, uh, a nation. So that's one of those indic indicators. Can you think of any others? 
Any others? There's an apostasy. There's a great apostasy in the last days. Here's several of them that are in the Scriptures that are indicative that we're approaching last days. We already mentioned 2 Timothy 3. There's a growing corruption, immorality, uh, people doing their own thing. It just gets worse and worse in the last days. There's a growing apostasy away from the truth that our people are uh, getting more and more involved in doctrines of de- demons in the last days. Um, do you, that, that thing you're using, there's a white one on the back side. Okay, you don't have the right one or somebody took it apart. The other, the, it's white and it was, they were wrapped together. That does the middle one because we just had to replace it. There's, a, there's another one there. Um, there's as well, there's a greater acceptance of evolution. It says in Second Peter that in the last days that people will be given to uniformitarianism. What is uniformitarianism? Everything will continue as it has in the past, and they deny the coming of Christ because nothing has changed. They deny the aspect that there was a flood. They deny the aspect that there was a creation. It's in that text. By the way, do we have a growing acceptance of evolution? We do. Okay. Israel is a nation once again. Uh, there's got to be a tendency towards a cashless society. Okay, in order to uh, embark on all those. There needs to be a growing ten- trend against nationalism and more of a universalism in order to get this one world system up and running. There's the building of the European Confederacy, which Antichrist will lead. Thank you, Adam. There's, um, there's got to be a world focus, a shift in the world focus onto the Middle East. Okay, 150 years ago, the Middle East was just sand. Nobody cared about it. What made the difference in the Middle East becoming really greatly on the world affairs, stage of world affairs? Oil, okay. And so that made a huge difference. So the, the whole focus of has to shift, and it has shifted in the last decades. And as well, there is going to be a building anti-Semitism. Why? Because Israel needs help. Is Israel kind of given to be um, an independent nation that's going to do their own thing? They are, which um, nothing wrong with that. But there's going to be a building trend against the Jewish people. I am amazed of what's happening in, in the America right now. Absolutely amazed by the amount of people that are just a growing anti-Semitism who would have thought that in this short period since World War II that there would be the same, you know, the sentiments on, on campuses? Wow. It is just, it is incredible that, uh, that it's being promoted to get rid of the Jews. And oh, it is, if you don't learn from history, you're going to, yep. Yeah, you're going to repeat the same mistakes. So, what we're talking about now, that's, that's some of the last days we've been talking about in this chart, just to see how you're doing with remembering it, because this is important. Uh, the event that we're waiting for, the next event in history, the rapture of the church, okay, and that's going to happen where we're taken to heaven. Shortly thereafter, Antichrist will sign a treaty with Israel. 
It's going to be a seven-year treaty, and he signs it, but it also kicks off the seven-year of tribulation, which in scriptures, there is all the prophecies, divides it basically into two groups. The first three and a half years, Israel will be more stable at peace. The second half, then they're going to become the, the uh, focus of all the attacks. And so they're going to hear of rumors of, of wars, and they'll hear of earthquakes, but they themselves aren't going to be the victims of much of that. And so what happens is there's going to be the first set of seal judgments followed by the seventh set of trumpet judgments. In the middle of the tribulation, Satan's cast out of heaven. He knows his time is short, so he's going to take that anti. Christ's character, and he's going to establish him as the ultimate one world leader because he raises him from the dead. And so that's in the second half that Antichrist is going to have his domination of worldwide rule in that second three and a half years in particular. After, and that will become more evil and more corrupt. And so God is going to judge Antichrist, his system, his establishment, and he's going to send the vile judgments that are directed towards him. Now included in that is going to be destruction of Babylon, whether it's a city or a society. You can decide that in how you understand it. There's going to be Armageddon. They all seem to wrap up right around towards the very end, the last, I'm going to say weeks, days, hours. Again, I'm not sure. I don't think any of you know either exactly how that all works to the exact uh, minutiae of those details, but it's going to be towards the very end. Then in heaven, there's the marriage of the Lamb that's announced, and Jesus Christ comes to earth. We are talking about that last situation in Revelation 19. In the first few verses, he's been saying that uh, there's judgment. We're thankful because God is going to take over. Alleluia, alleluia. Verses 7, 8, 9, he's announced the marriage supper is come. And then we read in verse 10, which I made comment to you last week. Verse 10, uh, again, there's breaks in the chapter. There's breaks in verses that weren't there in the original. Somewhere in here, there's a comment that's being made. Does it go with what happened before or what happens afterwards? I fell at his feet to worship, and he said unto me, See that you do not... Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted the end of verse 9. I'm sorry. That's what I was getting at. He said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at the feet of this angel. He said unto me, See that you do not. I am a fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. We worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so this angel has responded to John and made this comment about Jesus as the testimony of all of prophecy. And you made the observation, okay, that what that is basically saying, Jesus is the focus of all the different prophecies. He's the ultimate. Everything is leading up to what he's doing. And we made comment last week that this is exactly what Jesus taught the two men on the road to Emmaus, that everything points to him. All the prophecies from Moses and the prophets. He said that when the spirit of truth come, he's going to give us understanding so that he's, we're going to understand. And the whole goal of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to point us to Jesus, to glorify Jesus Christ. And so we have made that statement and it's, okay, does it go with what just happened or what comes? It seems to me that it really fits well right in the middle because the very next verse says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat on him was faithful and true. And so what happened 
happens here is we get a prophecy of Jesus Christ's second coming. Now this isn't the first time that we're getting indication of Jesus Christ coming and taking over the earth. There are multiple Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus. He's going ha- to come. He's going to have to take physical control of planet earth in order for him to be able to uh, establish his kingdom. He's not going to be accepted. People aren't going to open up their doors under their government windows and say, come on in. Psalm 2 we looked at back in June. Let me take you back there for just a moment because this passage is repeated several times, including in the book of Revelation. There's a statement that comes out of Psalm 2 that is important for us to understand some of these Old Testament prophecies. So you're in Psalm chapter 2, or or Psalm 2, excuse me. Uh, You're in that Psalm and he's talking and giving a messianic message about what's happening in the future. And if we were just to go through it and ask questions. Let's ask this question about Psalm 2 as you read the first few verses. Okay? What kind of predicted reaction would people have towards God and His anointed one? What does the passage tell you at the beginning? Okay, the the people rage. What else do they do? Okay, they they imagine what? What's that mean? Okay, empty thoughts. They're, they're, they're not thinking clearly about God, about themselves. What do the kings of the earth do? Okay, and the rulers, what do they do? They take counsel together to do what? What are they talking about? Against the Lord and against who? He is anointed. So we have people resisting God through a period of time in history. Is that already happening? Okay, have we seen that happen? Okay, so they're resisting him, they're rebelling, they're rejecting, they're encouraging each other. The idea of taking counsel is the kings are gathered together and they're like, okay, let's work together against God and what God wanted to do. And so it says in, the, in verse 2, it says, let us break the bands asunder and cast away their cords. What are the kings and the people saying about God? He, Okay, he can be defeated. What else are they saying about him? What don't they like about God? What are they accusing him of? Okay, the idea of bonds and cords is God has put limitations on us. God has restricted us. God doesn't give us everything we want. By the way, did Satan do this at the very beginning of creation? Yeah, who did, what, did he, what did he say to, to Adam? You can be like God's. Basically, God is holding out on you. And so the people are, the, the kings, the people of all generations, they're rebelling, they're resisting, they're accusing God of not giving them what they deserve. And so our second question, um, what will these anti-God group, people groups think they can do? Hmm, okay. Well, they think they can cast off his control, okay. What else do they think they can do? They think they can resist God, so we go through, and so that idea that they're cast off, they can, they can resist God. So God's reaction is what? He's going to lie. What's that mean? What's that? Yeah, it's basically like, sure. You think you can do that. Go ahead, try it. Yeah, see you go. So he's going to laugh and have derision at them is the idea that he laughs at them, holds them in derision, and then it says he's going to display his wrath towards them. Where else have we already read in our studies of late in the book of Revelation, 
What other book have we read in the book of Revelation about God's wrath being poured out? The book of Revelation. The last few chapters have been loaded with the wrath of God being poured out, the wrath of God. And so in this text, it goes on and we can say, okay, what does God do? How does he, uh, despite all this opposition against God, what will he do for the chosen king, his chosen anointed? What does the text say? He's going to set him up where? Okay. Does he give a place? What's the holy hill of Zion? Okay, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to set him up at, in his capital will be Jerusalem. What's that referring to? What event in future history where God sets up Jesus in his capital city? Okay. It's, we're talking the kingdom, right? The millennium. We're talking that this is what the Jews have been looking for for years. The Messiah ruling and reigning. And uh, in this text, it tells us how Messiah, how the Anointed One, takes control of planet Earth. Does he just come along and everybody cheer him? What's the, what's the passage indicate? Okay, is that what this says in Psalm 2? Okay. What's he going to do? Okay, where do you have that? Verse 9, okay. You shall break them with a what? Rod iron. You shall do what with them? Dash them. What's that indicate to you? Okay, there's going to be destruction, okay. There's going to be destruction. Is he going to come as a humble baby in a manger? Not in this text, okay. In this text, he's going to come and physically defeat them, those who resist him. And he'll rule. What's it mean to rule with a rod of iron? Total rule, okay. No more, okay. So he's gonna, he is gonna be in charge, and if people get out of line, whack, okay. So our conclusion is, what are we to do with God's son in light of his future conquest? What is the conclusion that this author in the Psalms says? Okay, therefore, what should we do with the son? Okay, which, okay. <laughs> Okay, so he says in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In particular, what does he tell us to do in verse 12 with the son? What does it mean to kiss the son? Okay. Okay, do you remember Old Testament concepts? Back in those times, if you kiss the king, what are you doing? Okay, we're not, we're not talking about being intimate. It's a, it's, a, it's a broad term that means basically, yeah, you're, you're bowing down and basically what might you kiss of the king to show your subservience? His feet, okay, his hand, okay, so this is basically the idea of totally submit yourself to him. Serve him with fear and gladness. Now that's Psalm 2. When was Psalms written? Give me an idea of characters in Bible history. David, okay, so we're going back... A thousand years before Jesus came the first time. And this is predicted. The Jews didn't get this. They didn't get this passage that people resist. Why not? What did they do with Psalm 2? I'm, I'm pushing you all the way back to June. I know this is really tough. Okay, Who did they say the anointed was in this text? Israel. They said this is us. Okay, We're going to be attacked. We're going to be the ones, but who's going to be ultimately elevated in time? 
Okay, it would be Israel. Is there some truth to that that Israel will suffer at the hands of heathen nations raging against them? Yeah, okay. And will they be elevated at times? Yes, we understand that. But this passage, it wasn't about them. This passage was about Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, the New Testament quotes this passage several times in reference to Jesus Christ. You remember in the book of Acts, this passage in Acts chapter 3 was part of Peter's message that's saying this was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You all remember, Acts 4, you remember that, amen. amen. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, and so this clearly, 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 this is a passage about Jesus coming back in power and in domination. Now we jump forward and we have the exact details of when he comes and does this. It's in Revelation chapter 19 and it's, we've, we've read glimpses of this. We've seen Jesus or heard Jesus talk about he's the son of man that's going to come in power and glory. And there's been the idea he's going to come with, with flaming vengeance. But now we get the details and they start with verse 11 of chapter 19. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat on him was faithful and true. Was called, excuse me, faithful and true. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule with... Okay, there we go. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he, that, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together, for the great supper, uh, under the supper of the great God. That's the marriage feast, yes? Is that what he's asking the birds to come and eat at the marriage feast? No. That they may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses. What kind of birds are these? Okay. So let's, let's break this down, if we can do this, um, in, just, in just a simple way. What stands out about the appearance of the one who's coming at this time? He's riding a white horse. If you were back in Bible days in 100 AD and you're reading this passage, is there any significance to riding a white horse? What? Okay, a ruler, a king. What did they commonly do as far as the white horse? Did they identify themselves by riding a different type of horse? Did victors do this in parades where they would ride the white horse? Most nations did it, except for there's one nation that they said that the king would be brought in not on a white horse, but on a, on a donkey. What nation would do that? Yeah, Israel did that. Uh, so, so here you have that in the Roman world, they're riding the white horses. Indications, we could say, does it show power? Does it show authority? Yep. Does it show purity, clean, cleanness? Yep. It probably, all of this is involved. His eyes were as a flame of fire. What's that mean? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Seeing things, okay, just piercing a concept. Anything else? 
I think you got it. Okay, that seeing piercing intense. Um, Hebrews talks about that idea that everything is laid bare before Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's going to see everything. He's going to know everything. Take this aspect. There's many crowns upon his head. Nobody above him? Anything else? Are these the crowns we gave him? Uh, are these the ones that we cast at his feet in chapter 5? They're not. Do you know the reason why? Those were what we would call Stephanoi or the crown of the laurel wreath of victors. These are diadems. What's the difference? The diadem, who wore diadems? Kings. Kings. Not just victors or people who ran the race in the Olympics. Well, this is showing authority. This is power. He's the rightful ruler of all the different nations. His vesture is dipped in blood. What's that mean? There's two possibilities here. There's two possibilities, and you can decide for yourself which one it is because it's not clear. But, there's, but I want to make sure you understand two possibilities. Whose blood? One could be his, and then it indicates what? If his, if his vesture is dipped in blood, what's that indicate he is? He's the Savior who... Okay. There's another possibility here. The enemy's blood. The enemy's blood. If that's the case, that his vesture, his, yeah, his clothing is dipped in blood, okay, is the idea that he is coming in what way? Uh, judgment. Okay. He's, he's coming on the battlefield. And he's coming. So which one is it? Okay, is it the blood of him or and his redeemed people that they're covered? Or is it the idea that he's coming shedding blood? Just, again, you're, you can, some of this is, is not clear. But let me give you a couple passages that are interesting that go along with this. The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, says this, I speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? Somebody responds to him. And your garments like one of the tr who treads the winepress. Now, we're going to see winepress several times. Why is the winepress brought in? Because God brought it in. Do you remember he said, I'm going I'm to judge the nations like grapes thrown in the winepress, and I'm going to stomp them, and their blood shall flow out of the winepress, and it shall cover a period of, or a, a place that is... And he gives the dimensions of Armageddon. Okay? Um, so we saw that in Revelation 14. So now we get another comment about his, his vesture back in the Old Testament. Your peril is red. Your garments are like one of the treads wine. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I have stained all my robes. When does, the, when does the Messiah do this? I already said it. Okay, we're talking Armageddon. We're talking when he comes back. And Armageddon is part of this whole thing that he is saying in the Old Testament, I am going to be stained with the blood of those who try to resist against me. I have trodden on the peoples in my anger. What word shows up for anger in the book of Revelation? Same thing, but a different word. Wrath, okay. I have trodden on the peoples in my wrath, made them drink in, uh, drunk in my fury, and they uh, brought them down in their strength. And so is this a passage that's talking about his blood shed for the redemption, possibly, 
to me it seems to fit more of the other path, the idea that he is coming as the warrior conqueror and nobody's going to be able to resist him. And so as he comes, something else is brought out in this text. We get names. Okay? What names stand out right away when you begin reading this in verse 11? He's called what? Faithful and true. What's that mean? I, I, I don't mean to be silly. It's so obvious. What's it mean? His name is faithful and true. He's, he's the definition of truth. What did you say over here? Okay. So, so it, by the very fact that he is coming again, what does that show? He spoke honestly, accurately. Okay. And I remember, in contrast to the people of that day that are ruling, what are the rulers known for in Scripture? Their lies, their deception. But this one is, is total, total faithfulness and truth. He's reliable, he's honest, he's dependable. His very return demonstrates his character, his faithfulness. There's another phrase that says, his name that no man knows and there's two possibilities of this interpretation from the original. It says, he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself, which that second phrase could refer to Jesus Christ, but it is also some authors and Greek scholars say it could refer to another person in the Godhead. He has a name known only to God the Father. Okay? And so I want you to make sure you understand that there's two possibilities of rendering this. It's either a name that only Jesus knows or a name known only between Jesus and the Father. Which, if that's the case, what does that indicate about the two of them? Okay, they're united. They're close. Okay, uh, the believers, we are also, by the way, given names that no others know. I don't know. I don't know how this fleshes out. Uh, I don't know how this works out. Is it, a, is it a name that's given just between, you know, some couples have, have names that they wouldn't share with anybody else, but they have names for each other. Pa parents sometimes have names for their nicknames for the kids that the kids, you know, they pray to God you never say it out in public. Okay. But what do those names indicate between you and that child? Okay. Okay. There's, there's a, you know, a t there's, there's an intimacy that can be teasing, fun, whatever. Um, I don't know how this, how this uh, flushes out other than he and the father, they have some type of, you know, he's given a name by the father. Who knows it? There's a uniqueness between the two. He is also called this. He is also called in verse 13, the word of God. Where else in scriptures is this showing up? Who wrote it? John, who wrote Revelation? Okay, so he's got the thing. And what's it mean, the Word of God? Okay, he's from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Okay, so it's emphasized about his eternality. What else is emphasized in the Word of God? Okay, his deity. Okay, great. Okay, the sense that he's involved in creation. The idea is... You know, his existence, his presence, his power, that, uh, that you know, he's God. He, when he speaks, who's speaking? God. Okay, 
And so uh, it's, all in, it's all involved there. There's just so much in that concept of the Word of God. Um, something else that shows up here. He is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This one is, again, I don't mean to be you know, insulting your intelligence. What's this one highlighting? No way higher. Okay. He's the ultimate. He's the potentate. It shows up a few times in scriptures. Okay. And it's always in elevating God above everything else. So the emphasis here is this is the supreme ruler above everybody, including other deities, quote unquote, spiritual beings, including people on earth. He alone has the right to rule the earth. So we get all of this information, but we also have his activities, his appearance, his names, his activities. And what we read in the text is interesting where it says in verse, uh, verse 11, it's very strong in the, in the original language, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. The make war has the idea of going out and instigating, waging war. It's, 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 he's on the, yeah, okay. So he's engaging this. He's, he's instigating this. He's bringing it to pass. He's not passive at this moment. Has Jesus at times shown a passivity towards stopping evil? Has he done that ever in the past? When they accused him, what did he do? When he's on trial, what did Jesus, how did he respond? He was silent for a period of time, okay? Um, and, I'm, and when I say passivity, did he take it at times? Okay, this time it's like, I ain't taking it no more, okay? He's coming, and he's, he's coming with purposefulness, okay, to just put an end to all this. And if we can use the term, he's coming with a violence against evil, He's to, to uh, just put a stop to this totally. He's going to judge. Now, we already know he's faithful and true. So when he wages war, his war is going to be done with integrity. In other words, the people that he has conflict with, how do we want to finish the phrase? They, they get what they deserve, okay? It is going to be waged in a, in a righteous way. This is a just war. He carries it out with determination, with good ethics and morality. And what we see happening in the Middle East right now isn't the revolving question about the morality of the warfare. The debate, does somebody have a right to defend themselves? Who is, you know, and people, innocent people are being taken out. We understand that that is all complicated. We know that that's, that's when Jesus comes and makes war, Number one, there's no question. Number two, who could question him? Yeah. So um, his activities, he brings an army with him. Who's the army? Okay, we're with it. Is there any other beings that come with us? The angels from, from Thessalonians, if you go back there, that it says in First uh, Thessalonians 1, verse 2, 4, somewhere around there, um, that we come, verse 8, there it is. We come, he comes with angels, but also it says that he has an army, and he's mentioned this army before. In chapter 17, if you go back, it's mentioned that this army that comes with him, uh, he makes the comment, that this army, these that make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords. And they that are with him are called, chosen, faithful. Okay? He's referring to those of us who, who have 
responded to the gospel, were with him. And we pointed out something else last week. He makes a comment about us in verse 14 that we're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Where else have we seen that phrase, clothed in fine linen, white and clean? This is just a week ago. The marriage supper, go right back to verse 8. Those involved in the marriage supper, the bride has the exact same description given for clothing. So it's very clear in this text, the bride comes with Jesus Christ. Now there's something missing. Did you catch what's missing in this? With the army that comes with him, which were in heaven, they followed him on white horses, clothed in fine linen and white and clean. What's missing with this army? No weapons. There's no weapons mentioned whatsoever. Why not? <laughs> We're an army without weapons. And is there any problem with that? <laughs> yeah. So we come with him, referring to the believers, there's no indication we have weapons at all. And the reason we don't need him is the next verse. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Okay. What strikes you in this one? Anything strikes you about this idea? What's that? How quickly? How quickly it ends? Yeah. Yeah. What's he have to do? He says a word. Says a word. How long does it take for you and I to say a word? <laughs> yeah. So with this sword of words, he smites the nations. This doesn't show up only here. It shows up in other texts that talk about that. So again, we're getting the stress about his power, his greatness, that it's all in his words, that he can execute judgment. And he alone wields this weapon of words. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so we hear that he strikes down the nations in verse 15. And, uh, and, and by the way, the, the word that, that in this a description, the word that strikes me is nations what's that what's that emphasizing everybody yeah yeah one man takes on and who wins he does he does so it's amazing that even though they are multiple in numbers he's able to strike them down he will begin to rule with a rod of iron we mentioned this already that he begins uh, mentions he takes absolute control everybody's going to conform to his government that he's going to institute and uh, Jeff uh, already alluded to it's going to last for a thousand years and we're going to read about that in the next few verses but verse 15 also says he tramples uh, he tramples the winepress of God's wrath and that immediately reminds you as soon as you read it, you thought of Revelation 14. Right? Because that's where he's mentioned this and he's built upon it that this is an imagery of divine wrath. Trampling them out like he does the, uh, the idea of smashing the grapes. And so it was very clear, already mentioned earlier, that this is going to happen. We didn't get all the details. We just got the idea. He's going to come and trample out. Then he gave us details. Now he's giving details of exact, and he says that's the, what's going to happen. And he's referring back. And so he's carrying out God's righteous judgment. It's interesting how other passages pick up on uh, have previously said it, and he builds up. I will gather all nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Give me another word for Jeho the valley of Jehoshaphat. Begins with A. 
Thank you. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage of Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. Let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. I will put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Anybody remember a passage in the book of Revelation where he talks about the sickle? Yes, you remember that. Chapter 14, okay? Go back to chapter 14. Jump down in verse 14. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat in the cloud and said, Thrust in your sickle and do what? And reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the, the harvest of the earth is ripe. You remember what you wrote in your Bible back when we were in this text. What did you write for ripe? Okay, it is absolutely, it's, it's a corrupted situation. And then it says, He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, uh, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, and having a, uh, he also with a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over the fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sickle, Thrust in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, gathered into the vine and cast them into the winepress. And the winepress was trodden without the city and the blood came out of the winepress to the horse's bridle. Man, Joel talked about that same thing. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will... Is there anything in this time period with the vials where the sun grows dark? Okay, and so the Lord will roar from Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake. Is there anything in the vials about the earth shaking? The great? Yeah, okay. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Zephaniah. Okay, wrote this. The great day of the Lord is near, it near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the battle of the Lord, the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation, desolation, a day of darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds, thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities, against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men because they have sinned. Their blood shall be poured out... It sounds like there's a vengefulness here. Yes? There's an intensity here. In the book of Revelation, it's called God's W-R, the wrath of God. Neither shall silver nor gold be able to deliver them. Isn't that interesting? Okay? But the whole land shall be devoured with fire of his jealousy, for he'll make speedy riddance of the dwell in the land. There's a, there's a come to in a moment. But the idea is total destruction of wickedness. Total. Won't that be the day? Won't that be good? Okay, so he's trampling it out. He's just wiping this out. And it's all done by Jesus Christ. It's not done by the United Nations. Sorry to disillusion anybody. Okay, but it won't, world peace won't come until Jesus Christ comes. And when he comes, something about world peace, he doesn't talk people into, into agreeing with him. He comes with force, okay, and takes them out. So 
There's another passage that we can tie together. Do you remember this passage all the way in the book of Daniel? There was an image of a statue. Anybody remember the image? Okay. What did it represent? The different kingdoms, the major kingdoms. The head was made of gold, and then you have the silver, you have the brass, and then you have, and it talks about that idea, and he, Daniel refers and tells us who it is, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then eventually Rome will come on the scene. But this statue of human governments, the great human governments that are in that Middle Eastern region, what happens to them at the end of the vision? Something destroys the statues, the statue in all the kingdoms. There's a stone that comes from where? It is not made or cut with hands, which means it's not a human government. It's not a human device. This stone comes from heaven, smashes the statue at its feet, the statue topples, and the stone into a great mountain. Yeah, who's it, what's it picturing? Okay, we're talking about, remember the rock? Okay, he talks about the rock in the New Testament. So Jesus comes, made without hands. He will destroy the ultimate of all these governments. Remember, we've already read in Revelation 17 that all these governments lead up to Antichrist. And so what happens, it gets destroyed and Jesus then forms his own kingdom that will take over the entire earth at that point. And again, this whole idea is he comes with force, with vengeance. Now, if we stopped and didn't do anything else, what one word or phrase would you use to describe Jesus according to this text? I'm open to whatever you want to suggest here. What one word, something that just strikes you about Jesus? What'd you say? Savior? Conqueror? I'm sorry. Victorious? There's no right or wrong answer here, guys. Powerful? Righteous? Somebody over here, I heard something. I'm sorry. Truth? Any others? Is, yeah, again, is he amazing? Yeah, and we get to be with him, and there's no problem us going to battle because <laughs> there's no threat to us, is there? We're just following him. This is absolutely amazing. Okay, let's wrap up with this. Let's make a comparison. Let's do an analogy. Okay, I'm going to give you his first coming. You give me, by contrast, the second coming. How they make a, how they are totally different, okay? That uh, that people have to deal with Christ, His first coming that we're going to celebrate here shortly. He came quietly, unnoticed as a whole. Second coming, okay. His coming is going to be noticed by everyone, okay? He came to save the lost. What's he do with the lost in His second coming? Okay. Okay, he's going to judge the lost at that point. He came a humble servant. When he comes back, king, conqueror, what's on his heads? His head, excuse me. The many diadems, he's the ruling. He rode a donkey, sign of humility. Okay, okay, power and authority. He cried with pity, 
mourning over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem would have gathered. What about his eyes now? Flaming fire, authority, anger. He was judged by the wicked rulers. He judges the wicked rulers, okay? He wore a crown of thorns. He's got the crown of all these diadems of all the nations. He allowed his blood to be shed. He's going to shed the blood of others, the evil. Left alone, deserted. When he comes back, okay, okay, comes with heaven's armies. He did not defend himself. Yeah, he's making, remember, waging war. Okay, he ascended from earth to heaven. The flip, he's going to descend from heaven to the earth. He was rejected by God at the cross. Yeah, now he's going to be ruling with God. There's a huge contrast here, okay? I am thankful for his first coming. Yes, yes. I look forward to his second coming, okay? And it'll be a victor's, a victor's celebration. So let's pick up from there. We are moving at less than a snail's pace.